um, uh, and we'll, we'll have a look at what God has to say. This, this um, by the way, revelation means, it's not revelations, uh, it's revelation, or if you want to be really technically correct, you'd call it the revelation. How about that? But we'll just call it revelation. Uh, it means unveiling. So I'm going to pray that God unveils his son Jesus to us today and over the next 10 weeks. Let's pray. Father, we pray that that would indeed happen, that you would unveil the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Lord, we would um, grow closer to in our love for him and, um, and our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. We pray that you'd help us with that. Uh, some bits will be tricky, um, but Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds, you'd transform our minds, as we've heard already today from Romans 12. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what excites you or what worries you about the book of Revelation? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you or behind you and share that. See if you come up with an answer. What excites you and what or what worries you about the book? Do that now. You can talk aloud. All right, that's all you're going to get. <laughs> that is it. Who can give me an answer? Be honest here, it's okay, we're all friends. Um, what excites you and what might worry you about the book? Can someone just shout an answer? Yes, Hannah. Don't understand about 90% of it. Okay, excellent. Don't understand about 90% of it, that's good. You're not the only one, probably. Um, how about someone else? That could be an exciting thing or a worrying thing, couldn't it? It could go either way. What do you think? Any other answers? Come on, one more, just one more. Guillotines. Guillotines. <coughs> Saw a movie at church when I was a teenager and had very, very bad memories. Okay, all right, linked in with Revelation. So, yeah, 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 interesting. There's lots of movies like that that sort of misquote Revelation and use it in a strange way. So, um, there you go, yeah. Okay, well, well it, you might, it, it is a controversial book. There are parts of it which we'll struggle with and there are parts of it where people come up with different ideas and that's okay, that's okay. Um, we might find a little strange, uh, we might ask the question, what does it really have to do with me? It's, it's almost like reading fantasy at points as well. It's, it's apocalyptic literature and I'll explain that another, um, at a later date. Uh, some of us will love it though, some of us will love the drama and some of us will love the drama in the scenes and the, and the pictures that are painted in our minds. In fact, that's what it really is. It, Revelation is a picture book. That might give you some comfort as you read it. It's just a picture book. And who doesn't love picture books? So there you go. Uh, our task is to understand the pictures, though. That's our task. Now, um, although I'm sure there are some pictures that you probably don't need to look up, the ones like this, avoid them on the internet. They're just really weird. Um, <laughs> don't do that. Anyway, keep going. Um, it is a wonderful book to study and it needn't be strange to us because if, if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've heard of Jesus, if you've read a bit of the Old Testament, uh, then I think you'll find Revelation not too strange at all. My encouragement with you, though, is to come each week. Come each week. Don't miss a week because then you, you, it, well, that you'll fall, you might find it hard to keep up. So come each week. That'll be great. Um, it's, it's a sometimes complicated book and it will push us on occasions. It'll confuse us at other times. You may not get the answer you always want. 
But it will point to the same gospel truths about Jesus that we've read and loved. But we need to make sure we get the balance right as we appreciate this book, this long letter at the end of our Bibles. We've got to finish up loving Jesus and not loving the book. So you can have two unhealthy emphasis two unhealthy unhealthy ways of looking at this book on the on one end we have an unhealthy emphasis where we read the rest of the bible through the lens of revelation now we don't want to do that with any book of the bible that's one unhealthy emphasis on revelation that it's the be all, be all and end all all i read is revelation there's that down there but then at the other end well i, I should say that you see, what we need to do when we read the, any book of the Bible, what we must do is read that book through the lens of the rest of the Bible. So the best commentary on Revelation is actually, is actually the Bible itself. If you want to understand Revelation and find a book to read as you're reading it through it, read the Bible. That's the best commentary on Revelation. So there's one unhealthy emphasis we could have. The other unhealthy emphasis that we could have with reading Revelation, and maybe, maybe you've fallen into this trap, is that we don't look at it at all. It's too scary, it's too confusing, and we'll just stay well clear. Or maybe we'll just compromise and just do the first three chapters. Maybe that's what we'll do. Um, the first three chapters are a little bit easier. Let's, let's put it that way. So we don't want to do that. In fact, we want to, we want to do what the cereal... Remember the, 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 the cereal, just right? Not too heavy, not too light, but just right. That's what we want. When we read Revelation, that's the emphasis we want, just the right emphasis. Now, to help us do that, uh, Paul Barnett, who's a, who was a, um, he's retired now, was a Moore College lecturer, and he was a, a bishop, in, uh, bishop of North Sydney in the Sydney Diocese. He wrote, he's written a number of really good books, but he wrote, wrote a fantastic book on, um, it's called uh, Revelation Apocalypse Now and Then by Paul Barnett. Uh, I really recommend you buy it. Of course, the best commentary to read on Revelation is the Bible itself. But this is pretty good. It's not really a commentary, it's a reading guide. And a lot of the stuff that we're looking at today particularly comes from that. So he recommends these four keys to this letter. Here's the first one. Crack the code. As you read through Revelation, uh, it seems very clear that John has written in code. Now, we can sort of guess why. Was it because the sea beast and the harlot refer to the Roman government, and so he uses veiled language to avoid the charge of treason or possibly to help his readers avoid such a charge. Maybe that's why he wrote in code. Remember, John himself, as we read in the first few verses of chapter 1, John himself was exiled on this island of Patmos, away from the church, away from friends and family, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there because of the persecution of Christians. So he's been flung out in that island. Now, Patmos is quite a beautiful island, but he is away from his friends and family. Or was it because the transition from history to eternity, and that's what Revelation does for us, it takes us on that journey, the transition from history to eternity is so profoundly inexplicable, he's driven to using symbols. It just good old prose can't quite do it. It can't describe the majesty of what's going on. Maybe it's a bit of both. That's why he uses these symbols and these metaphors and, and this code. Uh, I'll give you a few examples of the symbols that we'll come across. So, for example, white. Uh, white and the images of the throne and the crown portray purity, and conquest and kingly rule. So when we come across that, that's what we ought to be thinking, cracking the code. 
If seven represents God, as it does throughout Revelation a number of times, um, then six stands for, for Satan's claim to divinity. So 666, as we'll get to later on, just stands for Satan's failed attempt to be like God. They're not magical numbers. He could have used eight, he could have used seven, or he could have used five and four. It doesn't really matter. It's one less. The devil is one less than God. He's going to keep claiming he's just one less. One less. Uh, 12, 12 represents, or 12 in its multiples of 24 and 144. Again, we'll come across those. Uh, relate to God's people. So 12 in the Old Testament was the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, 12 in the New Testament was uh, the, the uh, 12 apostles. Each represented God's people at that particular place. 10, 10 is just a round number. And its multiple of 1,000 is simply a very big number of a very long time. It's not 999 plus 1 or anything like that. It's just a big number. That's all it is. Lion. Uh, we could take a guess at these ourselves, couldn't we? Lion nobility. That's when you see lion. Uh, that's why the lion, the lich, witch in the wardrobe does a great job, really, uh, C.S. Lewis, of um, presenting God as a lion. And, and the lion's noble, isn't he, in that movie and in the book, obviously, as well. Uh, ox. An ox is about strength. An eagle, speed. Mankind, wisdom. Lamb, helplessness. A horn. A horn represents power. An eye, knowledge, the right hand, authority. Now, we'll get to know and see more of these as we read through the letter, but there's one important rule that we mustn't forget. And here it is. Here's the rule. We ought not read these literally. Why, won't we re why shouldn't we read them literally? Well, because John never intended them to be read literally. Remember, they're a code, and for very good reason. Now, although it will be hard work, and I take it the original readers found it a lot easier than us to crack the code, but we need to try to understand the symbols just as the author intended them to be read and understood. Very, very important. Okay, so that's, that's cracking the code. What about this learn the layout? Revelation is a very well-structured book. It's called a book on a number of occasions. It's also called a letter at a number of occasions too. Revelation contains uh, two visions which John had on the island of Patmos. Now, the first we read of in, is in chapters 1 to 3, and that focuses on the seven churches. The second we read of is in chapters 4 to 20. And that, that relates to the awesome journey God's people must make before the new Jerusalem descends upon them in 21, or 20 and 21. Now in this second vision, so that's in chapters 4 to 20, what we find is four episodes. Now stay with me here. Uh, these four episodes depict tyranny, chaos, persecution and destruction. Now, these are not end-to-end. -end. They're not uh, what we call consecutive. Instead, they're concurrent. They're not end-to-end. -end. They overlap and intertwine as believers live through the millennium. The millennium's just the thousand years between the very long time, and we're in it, between Jesus' uh, death and resurrection and his return. So we're, we live in that, that time now. And so uh, these episodes... Uh, just overlap, they're just intertwined together. That'll help us a great deal when we come to chapters 4 to 20 and look through these visions and so on. Uh, many of our difficulties will disappear when we understand it like that. So, third key to Revelation, it centres on Christ. Now one of the points that readers have got a little confused over the years when it comes to the big theme of Revelation is that they conclude that Revelation is all about the future. 
It perhaps climaxes in this great battle between God and his enemies and, uh, and Armageddon. Armageddon is actually only mentioned in passing in one verse. Uh, we'll get to that in chapter 16. Books like Hal Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth and the Left Behind series are not helpful in that way because they miss the greatest and the most fundamental point of this book, of this letter, and that is the already completed victory of Jesus. The revelation leaves us in no doubt the great end-time battle of God does not lie in the future. It happened in the past. The battle has been fought and won. Jesus is the blood-stained victor that we'll read about. It's a completed action. It's done once and for all on the cross. Now, I, I love the feeling of a job complete. Who doesn't love that? It's just wonderful. A job complete. You, you sit down and you survey a well-cut lawn. Maybe you can have a, a quiet little brew on the side as you do that in the, in the heat of summer. Uh, sitting in the front seat of the car and, the, and listening to the engine as it finally purrs away and you've got the job done. Resting on the couch after the house is clean. Uh, I, I, do, I think I know about that feeling. I'm not quite sure. Michelle knows about that feeling, that's for sure. Um, the... the um, <laughs> The, the feeling of accomplishment as the tax is finally done. Now, I do know about that feeling. Michelle does not. There you go. It's all even. Um, uh, no, it's not. Don't worry about it. Let's not go there. But it's a, it's a good feeling, isn't it? It's a good feeling. Uh, sitting at your desk, contented with a smirk on your face, the tax is done. But, of course, you know, you're going to have to mow the lawn again, aren't you? It's going to grow again. Uh, the car will need a service in about 10,000 kilometres. The house will get dirty this afternoon. Um, and we all know the saying, there's two certainties in life, death and taxes. But when Jesus provided, using the words of Hebrews 1, purification for our sins, what does he do? He sat down. I love this part of Hebrews 1. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I don't know if he put his feet up. I don't know if he had a quiet you know, ale on the side. Who knows? But he sat down, the job's done. His death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, the job is done. That's the big idea of Revelation. Let's not miss it. Uh, if you've got a Bible there, you can flick through with me. But notice, notice as I read through these little verses here about Jesus' complete victory, the job done, notice the tense grammatically. I get a bit technical for a minute. In Greek it's called the aorist tense. It means a completed action, done and dusted, finished. All right. So Revelation 3.21, if you've got that. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, Jesus says, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. You notice the tense. It's done. Revelation 5.5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, has triumphed. He's not triumphing or about to triumph. He's triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Again, we'll get to that in chapter 5. Revelation eleven fifteen: The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Christ has conquered the twin evils of, of, of death and, and, uh, and guilt by his death and resurrection. As a consequence, God's kingdom is now present, a present reality. See, in Revelation, just like in other parts of the New Testament, the great end-time battle is not coming, it's already been. It's a battle that has been won once and for all on the cross. 
This is the key of all keys to unlock this book. Remember this and we'll do just fine. As our title in this series reads, the answers to the future lie in the past. That's Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay, one last uh, key to this letter. Don't miss the parallels. So historical context is always important, especially when reading Revelation. So from chapters 12 to 22, John regularly takes pot shots and parodies the Roman society. He does this by setting certain elements of Roman society in negative parallels or comparisons with elements of the gospel. We think that the Revelation is written in about 90 AD. It's probably one of the last books to be written. And so John's lived through a great deal and Christians are about to live through, live through a great deal more when it comes to persecution. Now, I'll give you one example of this, these parallels that John uses. So the community of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, which is characterised by faithfulness, truthfulness and endurance, is paralleled, compared with, the community of the beast, Roman society, the great harlot, characterised by murder, sexual immorality, sorcery and lies. So those parallels pop up quite regularly. Now, to help us understand these pictures and parallels, we ought to know a little bit about some of the problems that were facing John's readers. Now, I won't talk for a long time on this, but we can summarise it under three headings. I think I've got these on your... No, I don't have them on your notes, but the three headings are this. The first one is Jewish hostility. In short, the Jewish leaders had the connections and, well, and were well established in Roman society. They had friends in high places. The Christians didn't. The Jews regarded Christians, and they were growing rapidly in number, as a threat as heretics, as divisive. And so they were very bitter towards them and wanted to make their life as miserable as possible. Uh, they were intent on causing Christians problems. And we get a bit of an insight into this when John refers to them in, or Jesus refers to them in, in, in uh, chapters 2 and 3 as uh, the, the synagogue of Satan, these Jewish synagogues. The synagogue of Satan, very strong words, aren't they? So that's the Jewish hostility. The second one is heretical infiltration. The churches were warned about the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans, uh, but they were heretics and, and, and the churches are warned about them. The teachings of Balaam, again, don't know a great deal. Uh, John calls this prophetess Jezebel, uh, if you know anything about that name from 1 Kings, a nasty piece of work Jezebel was in the Old Testament. Their false teaching was dangerous and to be avoided. And another... Um, uh, problem facing John's readers were, was Caesar worship. It was not uncommon for the Roman emperors, the Caesars, to have the citizens call them Lord and God. If you go to Ephesus, you can still go to Ephesus today, um, great place to visit, great ancient ruins, there's the temple of Domitian. And Domitian, uh, back then, I don't think that the actual statue has still survived, but back then he, he made up this enormous statue, I think about 10 metres high, of himself for people to worship him as Lord and God. Clearly this conflicted with Christian thinking. Now this brought a, this brought a sense of urgency to John on Patmos because persecution went with it. As Christians refused to worship Domitian or the other emperors as Lord and God, persecution came with it. This sense of urgency uh, comes out in John's writing. In fact, history tells us that the next 300 years, uh, uh, 
the Roman state virtually declared war on Christians. It wasn't until Constantine came in, in that emperor in about 300 and something AD that, that Christian persecution slowed down a little bit. Anyway, all this impact not only on John's letter, but the people he wrote to. And it's important we get a bit of a feel for it, okay? All right, well, let's just spend a few more minutes looking at chapter one. This will be pretty quick. Uh, I think the, the, as an introduction, it's very long, but it helps us, I hope, to see that big picture and, uh, and help us understand the background of this book. So chapter one, we're, we're just going to spend a few moments looking at what John wrote, what John heard and what John saw. saw. And then we'll, we'll see what they needed to hear and then we'll see what we need to hear. That's our plan. So what John wrote in verses um, uh, 1 to 8, well, it's a prophecy, he says. Now, not in the Nostradamus style, you know, the, the 16th century philosopher, French, I think he was, he, where he put this detailed or event-specific preview of world history. It's not that at all. Instead, John gives a prophetic word. He says prophecy because he believes what he writes is the word of God. It has come from God. Uh, this word he's got given come from God to Jesus, to, Je to this angel, and now to, uh, um, to John. In fact, it's probably worth just pausing for a minute there and explaining how did, how did John get this word? Well, you can see in the start of uh, chapter 1, the revelation comes from God to Jesus through an angel to John. This angel, angel just means, um, it's the Greek words angelos, sorry about all these Greek words, but it just means messenger, that's all it means. So this angel was probably someone reporting back to John on the island of Patmos about the persecution that Christians were facing. So that's the, the method of this information that has come to John, and then at that point on Patmos he's received this vision. So it's a prophetic word in that sense, they're the words of God. Uh, it's an interpretation of those evil forces which were and are at work within history before the, retinal, the final return of Jesus as they will affect people in general and Christians in particular. So John's intention, therefore, is to encourage Christians about what must soon take place. You see that in verse 1. That is the suffering for the name of Jesus. And he was dead right. Uh, in the next 300 years, it was very, very difficult for Christians. He wants to encourage them of the reality that the future is in fact controlled by the past. He wants to encourage them of the already completed victory of Jesus. He wants to encourage them and say to them, you're on the winning side. Jesus has died, he's dealt with sin and death and he's risen and he's now reigning in heaven. You're on the victorious side. Let's, let's have a look. Let's read from John chapter 4 uh, verse 8. John, uh, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, that's like modern day Turkey, Grace, uh, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. God the Father and from the seven spirits, perfect seven number, here's God's spirit before his throne and from Jesus Christ, God the Son, you see the Trinity at work already, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You notice that tense grammatically again? It's done. It's completed. Jesus has provided purification of sins. He's now sitting down, reigning with the Father. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. This is a song we sang at the start from Revelation 1. 
And every eye will see him, every, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, saith the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John's intention, don't forget, is to encourage Christians. You notice there uh, how Jesus is described in verses 5 to 6. It's completed action. These are great words of encouragement for the persecuted church, for those friends who have been killed for the name of Jesus, for those friends who have been beaten up, that you met every Sunday at church and they've been beaten for the name of Jesus. What do they need to hear? What what is John telling them that they need to hear? They need to hear that Jesus is reigning, that that the victory is complete that it's done, you're on the winning side. And they need to hear too, John says, that Jesus is coming. He hasn't given up on them. He's coming back soon. That's what this persecuted church needs to hear. And friends, of course, that's what we need to hear as well, isn't it? And in verse 8, as opposed to the Roman emperor's claims of being Lord and God, God is the Alpha and the Omega. It's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. God is the beginning and the end. Uh, who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Lord over history. That's what John wrote. What about what he heard? Well, we'll just read this through again, 9 to 11. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom, uh, in kingdom, so John has suffered as well, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, his exile. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Maybe he was reading the scriptures, he was praying, whatever he was doing. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sidus, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So that's what John heard. So what did John see as he turned around to this voice? Well, we see this in verses uh, uh, 12 and following. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his waist, around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining, uh, sun shining in all its brilliance. See, the seven golden lampstands were told of the seven churches. In the midst of them was one like the Son of Man. Uh, words taken from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, uh, where Daniel describes the evil beast-like empires of the world as they rise and fall in succession. But then one like the Son of Man comes, in Daniel 7, comes to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and that man-like person is given everlasting authority that will never pass away, a sovereignty over all peoples of all time. So that's who John sees standing amongst these troubled churches. You're seeing this? It's a picture book. Picture it in your mind. That's who John sees. And of course, we'll see in a moment, it's Jesus standing there, the transcendent, permanent ruler who will be worshipped by all. And remember, Jesus himself referred to himself as the Son of Man, the one who would rule the nations. Imagine reading this for the first time. Your friends have been beaten and bashed, persecuted. 
John's away. He's writing this letter to you. It's been read to you. Yeah, maybe you're in Laodicea. Maybe you're in Pergamon, wherever you are. And you've been read this. Here is the Son of Man. Here is Jesus with his arms out with, with the, the church's leaders in his hands. I think that's what the angels are there. Those, and, and he's standing in the midst of the seven churches. What does that indicate? What does that mean? It means a great deal. It means that to these Christians struggling, it means Jesus is with them. He's standing with you. He hasn't left you. In fact, he's got the church leaders in his hands. He's got the church in his hands. How encouraging would have that been for John's leaders? And for us, that the revelation of Jesus to John in his weakness and need was the powerful son of man standing in the midst of his churches in their weakness and need. What a word to be heard for them and for us too. And this Jesus who wore a robe of a king, white hair like the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, the all-seeing eyes of a divine judge, the bronze feet of a conqueror, the thunderous authoritative voice, the powerful right hand holding the seven stars. Uh, and out of his mouth came the word of God, this double-edged sword. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Fair enough. Then I placed at his right hand. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Using words from Exodus 3. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And he says, Write there what you've seen, what is now, what will soon take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I think they're the, the messengers of the seven churches, the church leaders probably. They could be the, the people who have brought the letter back to them, but probably the church leaders. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's just what they needed to hear, wasn't it? Friends, I think it's just what we need to hear as well. That Jesus stands amongst us holding us in his hands. That's what we need to hear. We can trust in him. He's the ruler of the nations. He can be our Lord and God, not like these other lords and gods, the real Lord and God. He's sovereign over all, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of a messy life. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus stands amongst the churches. Well, friends, how that how should that affect us and the seven churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey in the first century AD? Well, that's what you'll find out next week. So I'm going to pray for us. And then um, if you've got a question or a comment, uh, by all means, um, ask away. We're going to try to do that after every sermon in Revelation, and um, we'll see where it takes us. I'll probably say I don't know quite often, but we'll give it a go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you that you sent Jesus. That by his blood, Lord God, you have forgiven us. You have dealt with sin and death. We thank you, Lord God, that Jesus now reigns with you. That he is the living one, the first and the last, the ruler over all. Lord, we thank you that you love us and, and uh, Lord, you are, Lord Jesus, you are with us. You're standing in our midst. Lord, we pray for those today who might be struggling and who might be even questioning where you are in, the, in their lives, Lord. Lord, may we all hear this word from you. 
this reminder that, Lord Jesus, you are standing in our midst, that you have us in your hands. Lord, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.